Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Exponential Minds podcast. My name is Nicholas Badminton. I'm a futurist. I help my clients look out 5, 10, 20 plus years into the future so they can create a better today within their businesses and governments and society as a whole. And today, I'm incredibly excited in today's episode to, to invite Richard Yonk uh, onto the podcast. Richard is a futurist with Intelligent Future Consulting over on the West Coast in Seattle, where he's an advisor to businesses and organizations about emerging trends and future developments. He explores developing trends in emerging technologies, including artificial intelligence, healthcare, biotechnology and genetics, transportation, robotics, and more. He's the author of the 2020 book, which is fantastic, uh, Future Minds, and ex- which explores the nature of intelligence and how our world is rapidly becoming more and differently intelligent. Uh, back in 2017, his previous book, Heart of the Machine, Our Future in a World of Artificial Emotional Intelligence, looks at the future of, of the emerging technologies, making it possible for computers and robots to read, interpret, and even influence human emotions. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Nick. It's a delight to be here, and I'm really looking forward to speaking to you about uh, a lot of different uh, areas uh, with regard to the future. Okay, let's get into it. And uh, and, and we, we're, we're both on the futurist.com think tank, and uh, we both know Glenn Heemstra, and that's how we got connected together. So that's really exciting already. And we had a, a pre-conversation a couple of weeks ago, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. But can you just share with us a, a little bit about your journey of how you came to be a futurist and how you uh, came to develop your futures practice? Absolutely. Um, yeah, as uh, we were talking a little earlier, everybody's story is quite unique, and it really kind of shapes who and how we end up uh, approaching this whole process, which uh, is in many respects a, a very, very unique area of uh, human, human thinking. I, I began uh, from early on with a, a interest and focus in both the sciences and uh, the media arts, so I actually had a deep uh, background in a range of different sciences, uh, astronomy, chemistry, physics, and so forth, and computer programming from really early on, the early 70s, and then uh, ended up going into media, ended up uh, becoming uh, uh, involved in science education programs and the like, uh, a way for me to be able to explore a lot of different broad uh, areas and aspects about technology and how it would affect uh, our world. And this was a, a something that I did for a decade and then got into more into uh, computer uh, systems analysis. Uh, and that gradually, incrementally uh, became more and more futures oriented, uh, different types of uh, just projecting and understanding where the technology was going to be taking us. 
one of the things that that whole path uh, gave me, though, was I feel a, a, a firsthand perspective on the shifting uh, nature of the digital convergence that took place during that 80s and 90s period when a range of different technologies that have been very analog for a, a decades, uh, desktop publishing, video or previously uh, motion pictures, uh, different uh, technologies suddenly became transformed and it changed the economics of those fields. It uh, had some devastating effects on uh, different businesses and uh, business models. And it was a real interesting perspective on how this kind of change could really impact lives. So I, I felt that, I feel that that was a major influence from that early period. And we're talking about like the beginnings of the internet, sort of late 80s into early 90s. And suddenly, what do we do with this cool online connected world? And and then suddenly you've got this this influx of new business models, new ideas, new media. You know the things that are really pushing our thinking, like you know the the early media, the networks like like Josh Harris's pseudo and some of his experiences with like we live in public and and all of that that fun stuff that I kind of like to to reference as well. But how how is how is how is sort of growing up and sort of exploring those worlds sort of enabled you to be able to to speak with confidence about the future today? Well, certainly it, it grows from there. Uh, I'm an avid and deep reader. I cover a lot of different, uh, not just technologies, but different aspects of, about society, about philosophy that I've read through and, and spoken to people and spoken with experts about through the years. And all of this comes together in what I think is a very, very important way because as you know, futures thinking is very much systems thinking. It's right. not a question of just, oh, we have one technology or we have one change and the world is going to do this. That's not how it works. It's that kind of thinking is what gets us uh, expect the uh, perennial expectations of flying cars for the past half century or so. So I think that it's really, really important to have that broader systems approach that takes into consideration many different aspects of not just the technologies, but the society that they inhabit and how that is changes humanity, changes society, but conversely, how society changes the technology as well. And that's something we can get into later, but it's part of a large part of what I talk about and write about, which is the ongoing coevolution of technology and society and or humanity, as it were. Yeah, and and you know, let's get into that because uh, you know, having having read through uh, Future Minds, your book that you released last year, and it's 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 had a lot of positive reaction to this. Lots of people sort of talking about this online and sort of saying that you know this is this is essential reading you know really thinking about that rise of artificial intelligence and intelligence as a whole you know from from the deep past to where we are today into that deep future and, and I love the way that you sort of position those things because we often forget that, that that something came before like where we're standing today and and it's an important perspective to as, as we look to the far future as well but 
I, I was really interesting as you sort of delved into that, you know, your, your, your thoughts and thinking around machine learning and robotics, but also, you know, I'm a transhumanist. So mm-hmm. I get super excited when I start thinking about, you know, intelligence augmentation. You know, mm-hmm. how can we upgrade human 1.0? And you talk in the book about hacking human 2.0, right? You talk about brain-computer interfaces uh, and, and, and a number of those other other elements. So I'd, I'd love to know, um, you know, what you found as you were going through the book and researching this and, and some of the structures you put in the book to discuss how the world is sort of changing with regards to this evolution that humanity is finding itself in. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and thank you so much for the very kind compliment. Uh, it was a delight to write. It was a book that I've actually had in, in mind for a good couple of decades. When I first approached it, uh, probably 20 years ago, it was, there was enough there that I knew there was a real book, but there was also some pieces missing. And during the past decade or so, we've seen a number of new discoveries, new insights about the nature of how the universe works, different aspects of uh, physics, complexity, uh, how the, the universe literally evolves. And those were the pieces to the puzzle that I felt I needed uh, to be able to actually write the book. So if you, if people, any of your listeners have uh, read either of the books, they'll know that I have enjoyed uh, when I approach something like this, writing from a perspective of a, of a bit what's known as big history. Big history is the idea that uh, our our world, our society, is this little period in a very much vastly larger. Uh, perspective of the cosmos in terms of earth history, in terms of the universe's history. And so that perspective tries to teach about our place relative to that in historical terms. I wanted to broaden that and not only begin from those origins, since I was in part with the uh, second book within uh, with Future Minds looking at uh, what are the origins of intelligence, but I also wanted to explore further beyond and take that and extend it into the deep future, into a future that is really at a certain level, at a certain point in the later part of the book at unimaginable uh, t- time distances uh, from us uh, today. And it's not that it, it you can't get to that level to that time frame and not be highly speculative that's certainly uh, the case but along the way uh, there's a whole period of exploring the 21st century and how that is going to change in terms of extrapolating a number of the different technologies that we are currently developing today how those are likely to evolve but what, how they're likely to develop entire ecosystems around them that I think are really, really important to consider as we think about not just those individual technologies, but how they're going to all interact, how they're going to interact with society and so forth. 
Yeah, I, I've been speaking about ecosystems a lot in you know the talks that I give uh, like on radio and in these interviews as well. I think I think we've forgotten that that suddenly all of these systems are really speaking to each other, and now obviously everything it's internetized, and everyone talks about the fourth industrial revolution. And as we add, you know, we've got we've got transportation, communications, we've got energy. These are the three dimensions of change, and the innovations in them are connected today. But really, the biology stroke ecology of the world, the biology of hum- humanity and, and the ecology of the world is coming together to, to really, you know, speed up the innovation, like create more data than ever before, more insights and, and really empower us going forward. How do you think, you know, those perspectives and those dimensions uh, played into your thinking within this book that, that, you, that you wrote? Uh, there's no getting away from the fact that our rise as an intelligent species, as a species that is actually capable of interacting with each other at a level that has allowed us to build a global civilization, uh, that has been the result of an ongoing coevolution between humanity and technology. That has, from the very, very beginning, uh, created a and a large ecosystem, one that has grown increasingly complex over the millennia and actually millions of years. So one of the things I talk about in both books is how from that early period uh, when early hominids prior to Homo, Homo sapiens, Homo erectus and so forth, actually going back to our Australopithecus, uh, that species began creating and working stone tools. And this process absolutely transformed us. That was the really our first foray into working with technology, actually creating on a systematic, continual basis, one that was passed on from generation to generation for over 150,000 generations. That's a phenomenal concept, especially when you consider where communication capabilities were for those early species. They did not have language the way that we do. They did not have the concepts that we have. And they had a brain case that was on the order of a third the size of our current uh, uh, brain capacity. Now, that said, it changed. It grew very, very rapidly from an evolutionary standpoint over the next couple hundred, I'm sorry, a couple million years. And a large part of that was driven by this interactive process with the stone tools we were making. There's been uh, work done by uh, archaeologists who are who work with neuroscientists to be able to scan the change in our brains just from becoming vaguely, you know, broadly proficient with this tool making. And we're, we already have a bunch of the toolkit uh, in terms of our uh, different uh, centers in our brain to be able to handle this in a, in a way that that early species could not. These regions of the brain were actually, some of them were actually generated by that uh, continual generation after generation of uh, stone tool making that was so beneficial to us as a species. 
It's interesting, isn't it? And and like when I when I was in the UK and, and in school, you know, we'd learn about you know the Stone Age and like very quickly, you know, like uh, rally through sort of Mesopotamia and Babylon and you know like city the cities of Uruk, you know, the early civilizations, and then you know Bronze Age, Stone Age, you know Bronze Age, and you know it, it's all about tooling, right? And that's what's really interesting. What you're talking about the the if we're thinking about the future, it's just about the application of our intelligence and the tools that we have in our hands or whether they're virtual tools and we access them through, you know, sort of interfaces or whatever that, that, that we sort of enact upon. And, and now we've got like these ideas of the Kurzweilian ideas of the singularity. We're headed towards this like human machine symbiosis right suddenly we become technology and technology becomes us so i mean you know looking to 2045 and you know that that roundabout time that the the like kurzweil and his followers sort of talk about is that it uh, is that the next big leap that we're going to find forward richard um lots of questions uh, and <laughs> answers in that uh, little uh uh passage there so thank you i'm gonna have to riff on a couple different aspects yeah first off and foremost uh technology has and continues to change us in our use of it always has always will the act of our spending time with any different feature at part different our different technologies actually rewire us i guess is the easy way of saying it and the, the more that we use a particular technology, the more that our brains modify in order to optimize and utilize it. Some of that over time can develop and be passed along generationally. This isn't to say that you and I sitting here uh, playing on uh, a video game, an Xbox or whatever, it is changing our neural structure, but it isn't to the degree and in a way that is necessarily going to be passed along to uh, our uh, our descendants and so forth. But this does change us and it changes us continually. So we have to be aware of how this interaction takes place. If we're going to be working with technology in such fundamental ways uh, going forward, in terms of how it's going to integrate with us uh, kind of more to that point we have always been in a symbiosis with technology this is kind of the point in my my books and and in my talks the idea that when we interact with technology we change it and it changes us and this is a continual virtuous spike spiral rather that ends up benefiting us and it ends up gradually incrementally building changing and advancing technological progress as well to address your point about the singularity uh some of that thinking uh it's a, a there are aspects of it that are definitely worth considering and thinking about how we are going to be changed by our technology. I do not put stock in the idea that 2045 is a um, 
you know, a, a, a clock that we are ticking down to. Yeah. Uh, will we get to a point when technology is more directly integrated with our biology? Absolutely. Uh, we've been on this path and progress process for millennia. Uh, when I look at and talk about a lot of this, I talk about it in terms of interfaces because it's actually our interfaces that allow us to integrate and operate and control these technologies. Uh, it allows us to rescale our, um, our motions, rescale our, the power of our thoughts. And this is where, the, where power truly is for, from the early days of being able to use cons, uh, ideas, inventions like a plow, simple machines to be able to achieve different tasks more efficiently, more readily, uh, to now when we use computer interfaces that allow us to control literally electrons uh, on a daily basis. That's a real big shift, but it's hardly the end of the line. We're going to continue to do this, and it's going to continue to give us more and more capabilities going forward. It's really interesting, and as as you're speaking, and I'm I'm a fairly new father, so my my kid is is seven months old, right? So it kind of makes me wonder. You know, we have these conversations. Uh, it's like, oh, he's got long fingers. He's born to be a pianist, or oh, you know, he's 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 playing with toys in this particular way. He's born to be an engineer. I wonder actually if in recent years the technologies that that I've used are since since the uh, since the eighties. The early '80s, when I started programming computers, the computer games I started playing on, on early sort of home computer technologies like the Spectrum ZX back in the uh, in the UK, if you remember that kind of stuff, or the Commodore 64, the BBC oh, yes. Micro, uh, and things like that. But all the way through to the Xbox and whatever that I've, I've been playing uh, for years, I, I kind of wonder if there's some sort of epigenetic programming that happened along the way that suddenly my, my kid was born with a predilection for like being attracted to interface you know what like i've so just tell you a story so i've got a i've got an iphone and my iphone's in a leather case and uh, to protect it and you can't really tell that it's a phone but you put that across the room and, and my kid is is literally crawling towards that and wanting to handle it and, and wonder what it is. It's the same with televisions, it's the t- same with laptops, and it seems to be the same with any of these things that have screens and interfaces to them, more than more than anything else. So I'm kind of wondering if, you know, we the evolution that's happening is getting, you know, in, in, in faster cycles as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting idea. I, I, I can't see how we experiment ethically and find out, <laughs> discover, discover uh, you know, what's nature, what's nurture with situations like that. Um, I, I definitely, epigenetics is something that is very, very real. Right. Uh, the, a few of the um, ideas going back to Lamarckianism, uh, where essentially you know, we do something in life and it's passed along to our um, uh, descendants. This is not as simplistic as what we saw then, but we are definitely seeing more and more evidence, more and more studies that do indicate that certain types of uh, changes that occur in our bodies through epigenetics are actually passed along to 
uh, the next generation and even a generate even generations after that, which uh, I think is really an interesting aspect to the potential nature of, of natural selection and so forth. Um, but in terms of some of what you're talking about as well, uh, with regard to devices and so forth, there, you know, when we're infants and hopefully a lot later, later than that, we're very, very curious. There's so much for us to want to explore. And if something looks different than everything else in the environment, <laughs> that's the driver. That's what dr drives our, our minds. It's like mm -hmm. pattern recognition. What's different? What's in here? I, I see a pattern. Great. Oh, there's something different than that pattern. What's that? That's what drives our curiosity. And that's what I find so exciting about how the human mind just keeps driving us forward. Yeah, and the tools back in the day, well, obviously, let's look for a rock that's sharp uh, or a rock that can be, you know, oh, there's a rock that's sharp over there that I can break into, you know, this egg or I can cut this carcass or I can, you know, club this animal over the head with or whatever. And it, the determiner of shape is, it's actually a really interesting idea as well. When, when you were looking at, you know, big history in the 21st century and you started to look at those, those deep futures, you know, were there any sort of stark realizations and unexpected findings or, or like, you know, these big revelations mm. that you had when you were writing the book? It's like, wow, I, I didn't think about that in that way. I, I have to explore that in more detail. Yeah, uh, there were a few, most definitely. And probably the one that pops to mind right now is that as we look across all of human history, there's been, and, and really evolutionary history, if you want to go back further than that, uh, sorry, cosmological evolutionary. Yeah. Um, if you look at the progression, there is this continual drive to utilizing more and more energy. Energy is the huge common link through all of this. And there's underlying aspects that I explore in the book, uh, the last book, uh, about this. But more to the point, <clears throat> we are currently living in a world that is under enormous assault because of our, our own behavior, how our, our industries, our, our uh, development of the world, we're overheating it, and yet we need more energy, and we are going to continue to need more energy. So the question becomes, how do we continue on the one path and still not destroy our world in the process? So I don't believe that the answer is that we're going to be able to just simply reduce all of our energy needs and consumption, which is a has been a almost a mantra for some factions for some time. And I think that it's going to be necessary that we find other ways where we're able to accelerate the energy production and usage without it contributing to, and in fact, if anything, helping to reduce the uh, global heating that is taking place today. Yeah, it, it, it's, uh, so I've been reading a lot about the Kardashev scale, 
mm. recently, right? The method of uh, measuring a, a civilization's level of technological advancement based on the amount of energy that's used. And, you know, for those that, that don't know what it is, you know, there's, there's three main uh, distinct designated categories of civilization. Type one, that's where we are. We're a planetary civilization and we're, we're using energy that we're finding on our planet. But type two is like a stellar civilization. Uh, we, can, we can use energy, uh, using control energy at the scale of the planetary system that we're in. And then type three uh, is controlling energy at the scale of the entire host galaxy. So being able to tap into resources beyond these, these planets. And uh, then you've got universal civilizations, multi-universal uh, civilizations. So it, it's interesting, you know, there's lots of people that have really theorized about where we go from here. Because, you know, the oil and gas that we've dragged out of the ground, even like nuclear, you know, and now we're trying to harness renewable energy, so wind and tidal and geothermal and and everything, right? We're, we're kind of getting to the end of that 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 level one of the Kardashev scale, right? And we're gonna have to try and try and uh, break the boundaries of where we are on this planet, right? Right. Uh, so the, the Kardashev scale is uh, actually uh, one of the cha uh, chapters of uh, the book. I uh, can't remember exactly. Probably around sixteen or so. And uh, uh, can't remember his first name, but uh, Karsha was a, uh, a Russian uh, right around the 1930s, I think he yeah. uh, posited this uh, scale and this idea of being able to categorize uh, different levels of civilization according to their energy usage. Now, uh, you'd mentioned us as a level one. Uh, actually, uh, we are uh, approximately midway to uh, level one in terms of our ability to control all right. of the uh, energy that falls on our planet. So being a log pseudo-logarithmic scale, we're approximately a 0.7, I estimate. Um, so the as we move forward, in order to be able to utilize all of the energy that falls on our planet or the equivalent which is, I think, the important factor to consider here. Uh, we have to have other ways of producing and obtaining energy. Renewables are fine up to a point, but obviously we have to live somewhere. We need arable land to be able to continue to grow you know, some form of food and other stock and so forth. So ideas like space-based solar power, SP, which can then be beamed to Earth, uh, are one way to potentially bring additional energy, clean energy, uh, to uh, the planet. Uh, energy that in and of itself isn't overproducing uh, heat. Uh, we do radiate heat we, uh, through the atmosphere. There are other ways we can possibly approach uh, reducing the amount of heat buildup that we do see, uh, but we also have to deal with the CO2 issues as well. But ultimately, yeah, uh, when, as you get out into the type two Kardashev, uh, type two civilizations, you're talking about moving into ideas, uh, whether they're viable or not, uh, like um, uh, the, uh, mm, wow liking on some of the technology now but anyway uh you know buildings large spheres uh, to be able to 
obtain and control the amount of energy, sunlight that's falling, uh, you know, being produced by our star and so forth. All of these are ways that we can continue to progress forward, but we're not going to, I think, continue successfully as a growing civilization with, and, and yet at the same time say, oh yeah, we got to, you know, cut down on the, the power consumption entirely here. That's not going to work. Yeah, I think any game changes in the you know on, on on the earth right now, any of these big companies, anyone that really wants to change anything, even right down to the homes that we live in today, energy has to be that thing that we have to master in a way, right? And the decentralization of that, and the super grids, and the low cost of generation, and the low cost of transmission as well. It, I personally feel is is this is 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 so key to the uh, to the thriving of of uh, the human race in the next sort of 100, 300, 500 years, right? If we don't get that right, we're going to kind of be in a, in a tough spot. Last 270 years, you know, we've been burning coal and oil and gas and been thinking that it's okay. And um, boy, were we wrong about that, right? So uh, it's interesting. So, so I mean, looking at these technologies, you, you've also uh, just recently as well, you, you've been writing for GeekWire over there in Seattle. I used to live on the West Coast up there in British Columbia in Canada in Vancouver. So I used to re uh, read GeekWire. I used to spend a lot of time in Seattle. Um, you're, you're sort of helping them and helping the readers uh, look at some of the, the nascent technologies that are, that are being explored today, right? Can you tell us a little bit about uh, a couple of the... Uh, areas that you've been looking at recently sure absolutely uh and uh, just to come back very momentarily uh i was the word i was looking for earlier was the, the dyson sphere I, oh yeah uh, yeah i was reading i was reading about the dyson sphere and a possible uh um the the resurrection of dead people the other day the it, it generally seems to yeah it's, it's, it's kind of wild yeah different but there was all about these energy sources and eventual sort of evolution of humanity where we can resurrect uh you know the dead from cryonic stasis anyway <laughs> that, that, that one definitely diverges from where we are definitely definitely that, off on a different okay let's come okay so let's come back rolling back to geekwire uh so yeah I'm, I'm exploring a range of different uh, uh locally uh focused uh technologies and work that's being done uh, the uh an article that uh, just went up a couple of days ago is about a uh, field known as toxic neural degeneration mm. and what this is is essentially in a in a simple uh, simplified nutshell uh these this is about keeping our computers from swearing uh so when we talk about uh generating automated uh, language through different models, whether it's for help systems, whether it automated health help systems, whether it's for uh, different kinds of autocomplete and so forth. Uh, we've got certain technologies and now we're gradually moving into a period where we're actually creating these very large deep learning models like GPT-3 that can take uh, a, a little seed or a little kernel of uh, a phrase and just take off and write entire passages about it, but it does it entirely on statistical bases. Right. So there's no value system there that is keeping these from saying and doing all kinds of, of things based on the corpus, the broad um, training text that has been used to train that model. 
so this team from uh, University of Washington and AI2, the Ar Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, uh, they worked on how do you actually measure this? How do we actually anticipate what this model is going to be expected to generate in terms of toxic language? And by toxic language, it's not just swearing. It's different kinds of bias, different kinds of racist language, because if you're drawing from something that's available to the public on the internet, there's going to be a certain percentage of, of this information that is just there as, you know, highly questionable uh, perspectives. Uh, and again, here we come into an just another problem or aspect of uh, this issue, which is that uh, one person's bias uh, or uh, you know idea of toxic language is doesn't necessarily uh, work for everybody. Some people may not see the issue. So if you say that after a hundred generations, this model is going to generate two percent, four percent of toxic language output, uh, how do you use that as a business going forward? There have to be ways to, understand, measure, and therefore be able to then create ways of modulating and mitigating those kinds of problems. So that's one of the stories that I just worked on. And, and it's fascinating just to see what kind of methods they are used to deal with that. GPT-3, you may remember, right. was is comes out of open AI. And it's this model that is incredibly powerful for automated text generation. But uh, very, very dangerous at the kind of level, potentially dangerous in terms of its application, uh, at the level that ideas like uh, still image and video image uh, deep fakes are, uh, where things are being automatically generated by computers that aren't real, that, that are of dubious uh, intent, let's say. And, and and this this could this could kick off you know a dozen conversations in a dozen different areas you know, simulation theory um, whatever it's kind of interesting when you talk about you know large language systems toxic language bias it's almost like you know as if I remember growing up, you almost need to know what is bad in the world so you know how to be good in the world as well, right? So there's va there's value in these systems. I, I mean, I grew up in in, that, in Thatcher's Britain in the 1980s, right? So <laughs> I was surrounded by all sorts of uh, toxic characters as well as uh, some really cool people as well, right? So it's it's kind of interesting when we start to see this. I mean, these are you know, when we look at these new technologies, it's starting to feel like they're deeply human, and we're trying and we're trying to like master something that's that's got sort of some sort of natural evolutionary ability beyond the technology that is built on. Yeah, you you mentioned one word there that I think is really really important. Oh, I mean, lots of what you just said is really yeah. important, but what but the word value I think yeah. is really critical. I I explored it a lot in. Uh, the first book, Heart of the Machine, because essentially one of the things that these computers and these programs don't have that we have is value. Right. When, when a system is generating text, is, is identifying different patterns in the world entirely on a statistical basis, that is not how we think, and it, is, and it skews what kind of influence it has we create value first and foremost out of our emotions as a starting point that's how 
value kind of originated. If you are out in the wild and you turn a corner and you see a lion two miles away, you have a very, very different response than if you turn the corner and it's 10 feet away. Right. And these this changes value. One of the examples that uh, I've heard before is that is that of a chess playing robot, a chess playing computer, such as Deep Blue, being absolutely incredibly capable at chess and sitting there and playing the grandmaster and the building suddenly catches on fire. The grandmaster is going to get up and get the heck out of there. The computer is going to keep playing and it's going to melt. Uh, it's not going to have any kind of survival instinct in and of itself because it can't understand that something in its environment has should have changed the, its value system at that moment. Right, right. <laughs> and it's interesting, you know, the, the value systems that we build, you know, as humans over the thousands of years that we've been around, tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, are going to continue into the future as well. It's the thing that things that differentiate ourselves. So, I mean, we, we could talk and talk and talk. And I pretty much say this to every guest that I have on the podcast is we need to have another conversation, probably in a few months time. And I, I'm pretty sure we'll do that. In fact, I think I need to get a few of the people that I've been speaking to recently on the same podcast for a bit of a roundtable. <laughs> Maybe we'll do that with the futurist.com think tank and uh, and some of the great minds in there. But, um, you know, Rich, I mean, Richard, what, what, what are the things that you're looking at today? And, and what, you know, what, what, what would you sort of suggest to, to listeners of, you know, what, what, where, where is it best to focus sort of some of our, our, our thinking in terms of like future states uh, as we sort of sit here today in 2021? Uh interesting uh, question because personally I think that we need all kinds of minds focused on all kinds of areas there's so much going on in the world there's so many areas for us to focus on no single person those no single group of people can do everything that we need to do we have so many areas that we need to change improve uh, try to make our worlds better and so we're going to need everyone focusing in the areas that they can really bring benefit, that, they, that speak to them, that give them passion, but that they hopefully want to use to build better futures, better worlds. Uh, I think that that's what's really important. Uh, I'm currently working on uh, my next book. I'm not talking about it in depth, but it does talk about and look at the challenges that we face in the, the near future, uh, because there's some really, really uh, interesting hurdles that we have to get over uh, in the not very distant uh, you know, years if we're going to uh, survive as a species. Yeah, and, and we as a futurist, we're like the navigators, you know? We're saying, hey, head in that direction over there, head in that direction. Maybe with also the explorers as well. And, uh, you know, I really value conversations like this, Richard. So I'd like to say thank you so much, Richard Yonk, for your insights and uh, your continued efforts to push our thinking forward. And uh, where, where, can we, where can we find out a little bit more about you? 
Uh, certainly. Uh, thanks. And thank you for uh, the, the uh, conversation, Nick. It's been awesome. I've really enjoyed this. And I think we've definitely managed to cover quite a few uh, <laughs> bits of territory in this uh, you know, short span of time. So uh, if you're uh, interested, my uh, uh, company is Intelligent Future Consulting, uh, the website intelligent-future.com. You can find my books, other writings, and other background on me. Uh, I'm, my books are at uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble, of course, uh, independent booksellers. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm delighted to uh, talk with people on uh, Twitter. I'm on, at uh, R-Y-O-N-C-K uh, for Twitter and uh, you know, connect with me there or elsewhere on social media and uh, excited to uh, have conversations with uh, some of the listeners. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to put some links to that down in the description of the podcast and when I share this on social media as well. Richard, thank you for your time and uh, I look forward to chatting again soon. It's been a delight. Thank you. Thanks, Nick.